I once worked with a moderately famous actress who said to me, it's not that you break the rules, you just don't know there are any, do you? Some truth there. I'm never entirely certain where the boundaries lie between what's acceptable and what's not, what's possible and what's not, I suppose by implication, what's right and what's wrong. This is not to say I'm a bad person, at least in my own eyes. The actress in question may have been pointing to a different conclusion, but that's her problem. It is true to say there is something of the glorious fool about me. I might wish it were different, but there it is. I have a tendency to blunder, albeit innocently, into situations beyond my ken, to try things where there is no absolute reason not to try, like taking your mother out of a care home and looking after her yourself. Sometimes this quality reaps benefits, other times not so much. To illustrate the point, I once had an idea for a film about love. I wanted to explore what love is, why we love, and importantly for me, why we fall out of love. I need hardly say the catalyst for my interest in the topic was stimulated by my own vicarious experiences of love, including divorce. I was sufficiently committed to the project to concoct a scenario combining fact and fiction in a way I thought might be original, not to say avant-garde, and to plan a road trip only possible through a bank overdraft I could ill afford. The film was to be called The Hotel du Cap, for reasons that will become clear as we go along, and I decided to begin by interviewing my 95-year-old grandmother, despite the infirmities of her age. Her confinement to an armchair made it hard for her to refuse, but I swear had she put up any kind of fight, I would never have gone through with the interview, naturally. In mitigation, I should say I loved my grandmother very much, both as a child and as an adult. She was to me both sage and hero. When I was still a boy, she taught me to dance to the music of the Charlie Kuntz Orchestra. She taught me to swim in a pool in Portugal where I cut my toe open and later fainted at a bullfight. It was she who took my sister and I away for the majority of our holidays presumably to give our parents a break. Later, when I went to university to study English and my father refused to support me in any way, it was she who kept me going with a £40 cheque, posted regular as clockwork every month. She seemed to me both liberal and non-judgmental, qualities I try for with my own children. I remember one day I went to church with her. It was soon after my grandfather's death. During the lengthy sermon she leant across to me and gave a gentle tug at my collar to reveal the bruise remaining from a less than proficient love bite. I quickly covered up because I knew what was there. Don't let them draw blood, she whispered. They're under starters orders and they're off. And they're off first time to a pretty good break. My grandfather I knew less well. I was only 12 when he died and only just experiencing those first love bites. He was a gruff, distant presence, and a man of simple pleasures, revolving around mixing Guinness and cider 
and watching horse racing on television whilst he rolled and smoked his cigarettes with his elbows on his knees. He was as fixed and immovable as the furniture. His passion in life was horses. He loved everything about horses. His brother had been the king's jockey in Egypt, which king I was never clear, and his family were all short in stature and from Newmarket. He'd run a hospital for old war horses in Alexandria. It was his whole life, until he and my grandmother met and married. They stayed married for the next 50 years. But there was a problem. My grandmother, throughout that time, loved another man. A man she was engaged to before my grandfather, and a man who tragically died in a plane crash when she was just 19. His name was Freddie. He was a very nice person. He was in the Air Force. And he used to take me out for a drink in the evening. And like a silly woman, I told him that I dreamt that he'd crashed. And sure enough, he crashed the next day. And I often wonder whether I should never have told him. But I suppose really it didn't make much difference. I went to the club to meet him. And I was sitting there waiting. And a, another girl I knew went by. No, it wasn't a girl, it was a chap. And he touched my hand and he said, bad luck, Matt. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, hasn't anybody told you? So I said, tell me what? They said that Freddie crashed this morning. I was told. How did you feel? Say that again. How did you feel? Ter terrible. But I should have known, because I dreamt and told him he was going to crash. But do you think that me telling him was wrong? Did it affect him? No. I hope not. In my youth, I had found her love for Freddie a deeply romantic story, and one she constantly harked back to and whenever she was in extremis. Towards the end of her life, it was always visions of Freddie coming for her in a felucca, a sailboat common on the River Nile, gorgeous with a single white sail and laden with fruit and flowers in the evening light of the desert beyond. That was her consolation. My grandfather, her husband, whose name was George, had proposed to her over Freddie's grave. He told her that if she could learn to love him over time, he would always take care of her and love her in return. He said that if he could swap places with Freddie to prove his love, he would do so. It was my grandfather not my grandmother, who was to be the hero of the Hotel du Cap story. Every year, my grandfather took a two-week holiday alone to the same hotel in the north of Spain. Nobody knows what he did there or why he went back again and again to the same place. The Hotel du Cap would be a quest to uncover his secret. 
the film I hoped to make was nothing more or less than an homage to a man I knew so slightly, but who, perhaps for exactly that reason, had come to symbolise the moral triumph of the Stoic. His ability to endure was a quality I sought for myself, not least because my then wife had fallen in love with another man. With my bank overdraft, I bought a bright yellow camper van to make the road trip and to shoot a trailer for the film, intended to attract the money from financiers. I made some calls to old contacts from my days in the film business, and by sheer good fortune, I found an experienced camerawoman willing to accompany me on a trip that would take us right through France to the Mediterranean coast. It was now just a question of booking the cross-channel ferry, picking Fay up from the railway station and loading up, all of which was achieved without significant incident, and soon we were on our way. I won't relay the precise details of our week-long journey through France, but here's a snapshot. We attempted to interview people we met along the way for their views on love and to film sequences of me wandering and wondering that would serve to illustrate a perplexed man on a quest to find answers. I stopped passengers on the ferry and tried to appear like a filmmaker with a serious mission and a professional approach. Most learned to avoid me. We stopped in Caen to talk to a French academic and philosopher who'd written on the subject of love. Unfortunately, term had ended and he was nowhere to be found. Further south, we filmed a sequence with an old friend called Sarah in a marketplace, but the microphone wasn't up to the crowds around us and I later found I could hear almost nothing of what she'd said. When we finally made it to the small resort near Cadaquez on the Mediterranean coast, the location of the Hotel de Cap, we found the hotel closed for refurbishment and under new management. Nobody remembered my grandfather. My foolishness should have ended there, but it didn't. I decided the best place to convince investors to give me the money to make the full-length film would be the Cannes Film Festival. Several lies went down on the application form. Little lies, to be fair. Then I bought a black dress suit from a charity shop. I hoped that with its silk collars and tiny silken stripes down the outside of the trouser legs, it might pass in dim light and thus allow me to attend swish parties and screenings without drawing undue attention. I hired a car, booked a week in the cheapest campsite I could find, and boarded a plane for Nice. So obsessed was I with pretending to be someone I was not, that whilst I remembered to take a tent, I completely forgot to take either a sleeping bag or an air mattress. As a consequence, I would sleep very little for the next few days, despite the wine box I bought to hang from the tree outside the tent. During the day, I walked the corridors of the festival, 
trying for meetings and appointments with film companies that might back the idea of the Hotel du Cap. In the evenings, I returned to the campsite, took my suit from its hanging place on the branch of the same tree with the wine box, and drove myself back into town to stroll the Quasette, to trawl the bars of the Majestic and the Carlton, in the hope of joining that very exclusive club. To be honest, invitations were scarce, though I did manage to gatecrash one swish party. As I negotiated the gangplank to a yacht big enough to hold a hundred or more with room to spare, I was stopped by one of the two burly security men guarding the access. He held one hand up in front of my chest and with the other pointed down towards my feet, which were clad in second-hand shoes bought from the same charity shop as the suit. I was about to raise my arms in the air and admit that yes, I was an imposter, when I realised he simply wanted me to take them off in order to preserve the teak deck of the yacht. As far as I can recall, the evening progressed reasonably well, though to be fair I didn't remember that much about it the next day. I even had the chance to talk drunkenly to a few people whose names I could not recall, when I awoke in the tent, still wearing the suit, with a head pounding from an excess of free champagne. To be fair to myself, I doubt any of those people would have plumped up the cash even if I could have remembered their names. And I probably don't need to tell you that I never made the film. Nor did I discover what love is or why we love. I should probably have listened to my grandmother. Sean, love just, is just love. You don't need advice. You either know you love somebody, or you don't know you love them. There's, there's no, no lessons about it. Love, love, love. Love, love, love.